Hello and good evening. Welcome to another episode of Between the Presets, a podcast by me, Rudy Stetner, that comes out every Monday evening. Here is the place where anything that can be said in polite company is fair game for discussion, even if it occasionally offends. Let's roll. Please be advised that this episode of Between the Presets contains material that may be unsuitable for younger audiences. If that is an issue, please listen at another time or on headphones. Thank you. There is a saying in forensics that no one can walk into a room and walk out of it without leaving something there or taking something with them. The implications of this aphorism seem to go far beyond the field of forensics and extend almost to every point of one's waking day. Although I will, for the time being, narrow my focus and focus simply on crime and punishment. I've always been fascinated by cases in which a person wrongfully incarcerated or sadly on occasion wrongfully executed was proven to have been innocent. Back in 1980, I met a man named Izzy Zimmerman, who became quite famous and also became a jailhouse lawyer. In 1937, he was convicted of murder based upon perjured testimony, almost went to the electric chair, was acquitted, became a jailhouse lawyer when it was illegal to even possess law books, and was released from prison after almost 25 years of having been imprisoned, and it was proven that false testimony was orchestrated by the uh, legal authorities in that case. There was a case on the other side that I read about in which a crime remained unsolved for many years. It was a murder of a very old man well into his 90s. It became a cold case. Someone broke into his apartment and in the course of uh, incapacitating him and then robbing the apartment, uh, they tied him up and stuffed his own yarmulke down his throat, whereupon he choked to death. That was the cause of death. As was the case in many cold cases, uh, a collection of evidence was assembled, put into, I guess, manila envelopes and put in a warehouse in Brooklyn. And There it stayed for 
many years. Over 20 years later, there was a domestic dispute, unremarkable, in which a woman was alleging that she had been beaten by her boyfriend. As in many such cases, the police come to a man and a woman yelling back and forth at each other, and they listen. Sometimes in the course of listening, they find out interesting things that might pertain to other cases that they might have. And as long as no one is uh, physically assaulting anybody in their presence, they will sometimes stand back and listen. So that's what happened in this case. The woman was trying to persuade the police that her boyfriend deserved to be locked up. And she said, she said, this man is a murderer. He killed a Jewish guy back 20 years, 20 years ago. She, and she named the apartment building in which this murder had taken place. Now, police have a long memory. Part of their um, job skills involve remembering details about people they come in contact with, uh, where they live, what they've done, how they get along or don't get along with their neighbors. So they recognized, they recognized the address. They remember some of the, they, they recognized the case. Police talk with each other about, uh, crimes they've solved and crimes they failed to solve. So when this lady mentioned that the guy had been choked to death on his own yarmulke, the police listened. There are details that are of crimes that often are not published in the press. And when a suspect or person of interest or a witness has knowledge of these things, that can, can or should trigger an investigation. So sure enough, the police, the guy was arrested. They had probable cause to fingerprint him because there was a credible allegation of domestic abuse. And they got the uh, cold case file from this murder more than 20 years previous. And one of the interesting fragments of evidence was a fragment of a pinky finger fingerprint that had been left on the yarmulke that had been stuffed down the guy's throat. They compared it to the pinky fingerprint that they had extracted from the domestic violence um, suspect. And sure enough, it was a match. And he was, he was uh, brought to court 
on charges of killing the uh, elderly Jewish man and was sent to prison for his crimes. The implications of this extended far beyond that individual case, which I'm sure gave closure to the um, family and survivors of the um, uh, man who was killed. It also sent a message to the public that certain crimes would never be forgotten, that there would always be an attempt to catch the guilty until the last breath of the perp, the perpetrator. It left open the possibility that if somebody smugly thought that they had gotten away with murder, that maybe they weren't so safe after all. Pursuing such cold cases and also seeking to free the wrongfully convicted of both capital and of lesser crimes would seem to be a statement of our values as a society, that the metaphoric portrayal of justice as being blind should not degenerate into striking the innocent. And at the same time, the cause of the aggrieved, the causes, the cause of the crime victims is never, ever abandoned. I used to work in a place that employed police officers and detectives who were moonlighting. And the subject came up of weird crimes. Uh, one thing, one crime which stood out to me because I'm intrigued by the theme of why bad things happen to good people. A question that can be deeply troubling and I think affects all of us. So, uh, I had read a story in the paper about a fair beater um, barging onto a city bus through the rear door. It was a kid around the time school was out and the kid didn't pay his fare and sat down. And without a word, another passenger got up, quietly shot the kid dead, point blank, and got off the bus. It was an unsolved crime for which no one was ever apprehended. And I remember saying to the uh, police detective who was moonlighting at my job, and he said, yeah, I remember that case. That sure proves that God keeps score. I was really puzzled by his response, and he explained the story, and I was pretty shocked. So uh, I asked this detective what he meant by, you know, this God-keeping score. 
And he told me that that particular kid was involved in um, a situation. I guess he was a minor and his sister was a minor. And the only way I can delicately phrase this is that his sister became pregnant and they uh, both had the same, both the, both the, sister and the brother both had the same grandparents let's just leave it kind of like that you know it was a case of um, forbidden relationship and uh, that was of course a matter for child protective services it was also a legal matter you know for the well-being of the of this uh, young girl and uh, they weren't getting any place whether it was through intimidation, traumatic bonding, or whatever, uh, they uh, they could not get any cooperation from either partner, uh, and uh, I'm not sure what role the mother of the two children had in the whole thing, but the case went no place. And what the police officer was saying was that even if uh, even if this uh, young man had dodged the laws of New York State, that he had not dodged the universal laws of the Creator, and that there was some enforcement going on there, uh, some sort of what secular people would refer to as uh, poetic justice. But in the telling of these stories, and uh, you know, living in a high crime area of Brooklyn, as I did for many years. Uh, the recurring theme of justice delayed, justice denied, people getting away with murder and walking free uh, presents a lot of troubling questions to all of us who live there together in uh, part of Brooklyn where I lived in. One thing that does bother me is that uh, this may sound like I'm coming down on the uh, liberal side, but so be it, is that if you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars incarcerating someone for long periods of time for a crime, it, it would seem that you'd really want to make sure that they're actually guilty of the crime that they've uh, committed. In many places, uh, New York City, unfortunately, is one of them. People are often told, if you'll plead guilty to this minor crime, you'll get three months, six months, a year. But if we have to bring you to trial, we could put you away for 10 to 20. There are a lot of people facing those odds with very poor legal representation choose to plead out and they're left with a criminal record that they really don't deserve and what they thought had been um, the so-called justice system was kind of like a numbers game and uh, they didn't want to lose it happens all the time now if somebody's going to invest say two, three million dollars in a the business, they're going to want to research 
the proposal. They're going to want to have accountants go all, go all over it. They're going to want to check out the business proposal to see if it's viable, etc. before they sink a lot of money into it. Now, it would seem that no matter how poor somebody is, that before you sink a ton of money into locking this person up and releasing them out, uh, from incarceration in who knows what sort of damaged state, that you would want to find out that they're actually factually guilty. But we don't live in a society like that. Um, DAs like to uh, have a good scorecard of a high percentage of convictions. And uh, this was... This sad state of affairs existed even before we have what we currently have, where nothing is a crime. Our cities are descending into madness, which, you know, we're all seeing the effects of. Part of the problem is that we have an adversarial justice system. The prosecution says the defendant is guilty. The defense says he's in it, he's, he or she is innocent, and uh, it, it's a game. It, it's as much it's as much a game like a game of chess as anything. And you're playing to win rather than to find out the truth. Uh, I wish we could evolve to a place where we could agree that the. Search for truth is the most important thing. Unfortunately, we are further from that than ever, and we have a so-called justice system in which the natural sensitivities and values of the population are disregarded and um, papered over. It's not a good state of affairs. In a total change of subject um, I um, very frequently reach out on social media to people to friends and to family sometimes I say things I'd wish I had not said and uh, a friend of mine who I'll call Yitz told me and this was uh, an amazing suggestion. I don't know why I never thought of it. He said that I should start my own WhatsApp group in which, to which only I belong. And that if I feel like typing something to somebody or sending them a voice message, that I can send it to myself, sleep on it, or maybe sleep two nights on it. And then if it still seems appropriate to then by all means send it and I thought that was a uh, decent suggestion the only thing I would wonder about would be a couple of questions what if I get what if I kick myself out of the group what if I ban myself from the group maybe I could start another another group and get into arguments with myself and uh, that way I would always win but I thank my good friend, who I will call Yetz, for giving me this suggestion, and 
still being friends with me after my intemperate outburst, which uh, it has been alleged that are more frequent that they ought to, than they ought to be. So uh, I wish all of my listeners a good and a blessed week. We are in the uh, month preceding the Jewish New Year. May we not only be inscribed for a blessed year, but may our deeds uh, create the type of paradise in which we wish, wish to live. Bless you all, and uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks. This wraps up another weekly episode of Between the Presets. I thank you all for the pleasure of sharing with me my weekly muse. Whatever platform you access, hitting like, subscribe, or leaving a comment is much appreciated. My email address is thewinterriders at gmail.com. Thewinterriders at gmail.com. Until next week, adio, which in some African languages means born on Monday or be righteous and closely resembles adios in Spanish.